This is your host, Abby Martin. This is Robbie Martin. Uh, it's been a little bit since we've done a podcast, so there's a lot of shit that went down. Um, sorry for the delay. Robbie's been putting on really amazing solo episodes, breaking down the Clinton um, deification <laughs> and, and the whole kind of uh, precursor to the war on terror and the blueprint that was kind of established back then, so definitely check out those episodes if you haven't already. Um, a lot of shit has been going down, which is why we've kind of postponed this. I mean, first of all, we went to Japan, which was really, really amazing. A uh, little family trip there, um, which we'll talk about in a second. Just to give you a little bit of a breakdown. So DC is <laughs> a really fucked up place. Um, people here are kind of have a lot of ulterior motives. Um, everyone knows who's following the show and who's following my work knows about Liz Wall. Um, she was a former fake friend of mine here, more like an acquaintance, um, you know, went out and kind of stole this big thunder of, uh, you know, stole this, basically the steam behind me criticizing RT and tried to go out and do this whole fucking charade. And then, and then having like all these like neocon um, spin masters come out, like shaping her whole kind of narrative out there and kind of you know stage managing her whole like pr campaign to talk shit about russia and kind of resurrect this cold war and then we realized that the people who were behind that were also working for think tanks that were i mean it's very weird like the way dc yeah, the works same, is it's the just most like infamous, really strange <laughs> most infamous think tank ever you know i mean it's it's like infamous because it's the same people I mean, it's a rebranded version of the same think tank that's called that said we need a new Pearl Harbor to speed up the rebuilding of America's military. Yeah, I mean, it's not so a it's, joke. Like these people are really not good. They're dangerous. They work for Bill Crystal, who's disgusting. Um, it's sick. Robert Kagan. Yeah, I mean, this is not a joke. Um, yeah, I mean, Robert Kagan. If any, you know, any longtime listener of our show will know that Robert Kagan is the husband of Victoria Newland, U.S. State Department like ambassador. I might have her position kind of wrong, but she's kind of like one of the main faces that's been involved in this Ukraine situation with NATO and all this shit. So yeah, she's the one who said "fuck the EU." On yeah, the, over on the phone with Jeffrey Pyatt. Yeah, um, and Jeffrey Pyatt's the guy who's been putting all that that weird manipulative um, satellite imagery on Twitter, showing how Russia is building all these troops up on the border and all this shit. And it's like he he does it all in Russian. He t he like you know, types it out in Russian. It's really interesting, actually. It We're talking really about U.S. Uh, government official. It's very, it's very, very fascinating. So when all the Liz Wall stuff happened and then kind of seeing these, like, D.C. neocons who kind of had resurrected that whole, like, PNAC, you know, risen out of the ashes into that new think tank, the Foreign Policy Initiative, and then all that drama went down, and I was like, wow, this is so crazy that you can kind of pinpoint, like, literally like five to 10 journalists here who act as the stenographers for the government. I mean, you know, you have the government on one hand prosecuting whistleblowers and prosecuting people who like publish anonymous government sources that expose government secrets and corruption. And then on the other hand, you have actual government sources just planting stories constantly. Yeah. And then, and then I think it needs to be noted that it's like, we're not talking about the government as a whole. These are different factions within the U.S. government that also extend outside the government structure into these privatized think tanks in mm -hmm. D.C. Mm -hmm. D.C. is an extremely small community. 
I mean, it's kind of like it's cliquish. A lot of people know each other. A lot of people who are even on, quote, opposite sides of the political spectrum know each other very well. And they kind of keep each other safe. They don't write critical stories about each other. You know, like a Republican or neocon reporter might not attack his friend that he goes to the bar with who's a Democrat liberal reporter. You know, stuff like that. So there's it go, it's, there's many layers of collusion. It's And, and in D.C. especially, it's I mean, it's obviously the worst. But... You know, what kind of relates back to what happened on your show, which you'll you'll go into in a second, is that after 9-11, we didn't just open the door for all these civil liberty erosions and and torture and endless wars. What we also opened the door for that I think people don't mention enough, and especially someone like Paul, or no, I'm sorry, Paul Bremer, who was the head of the Iraqi government while we were first occupying it, he opened the door for basically privatized... Um, functions of what used to be the U.S. military and our intelligence apparatus, like the CIA and NSA, to the point now where it's the the line is extremely blurry between private industry and the U.S. government. There's even private in- industry making weaponized anthrax for the U.S. government now. So if you can imagine just that collusion between you know the private sector and the government, you know. Um, like the Syrian task force that you're about to mention mm-hmm. is kind of an example of that it's a private, you know, entity, but you know, there are some bizarre connections there. So why don't you talk about some of those? Unfortunately, my show was used as a, a means to peddle pro-war propaganda, which I'm vehemently against. And so I got to my brother's house, you, <laughs> your house, and we watched it together and it was really shocking. It was like probably the worst thing I've ever seen on TV regarding Syria. And I really don't take this lightly. Um, I am really, really militantly <laughs> militantly against military intervention. Um, I'm extremely passionately pro-peace. And when we watched the interview together, our mouths were agape. Like this is extreme propaganda to the point where you know, this guy's holding up fucking Netanyahu style, like photographs of dead children and um, yelling stuff about Putin and Assad and all that stuff. So I I, I, I told my producer, I said, look, I'm gonna have to distance myself from this. Um, these guys who are in the Syrian Emergency Task Force. Um, they thought that they like hijacked your show and got this great opportunity to spread their pro military intervention point of view. And unfortunately, I don't think anyone was really watching because, no. I mean, people probably tuned into your show and saw you weren't hosting and may- maybe even turned it off. And on top of that, uh, the the shit that they were doing on your sh- on the show with Manny hosting was like bad propaganda. It wasn't even wasn't even skillfully done. It was done in a way where anybody with a brain it was like even below fox news level in some regards the way the guy was talking it was just it was a joke i mean it wasn't even effective but that it doesn't really matter because it was such a violation of what your show is about and also these people are also connected to some of the same people that originally tried to cause stress for you in the first place with like the um uh the daily beast writers uh jamie kirchick and eli lake and Josh Rogan, yeah, this who is, was this quoted, is, yeah, yeah, in that interview that was done on your show. <laughs> I wouldn't even call it your show for that day. It was someone else's show, obviously. Um, 
he was quoted. And that's the guy that wrote the Al-Qaeda conference calls fake story with Eli Lake. And he's written several stories that are sort of designed to do things similar. Yeah. And, um, and that's what's so interesting about D.C. is what I mentioned earlier about kind of these five to ten journalists who act as these conduits to plant government propaganda. It's like you can literally count them on your hands. And what's amazing is this guy, Josh Rogan and Eli Lake, who work for the Daily Beast and now just got this cushy fucking job with Bloomberg. They get planted stories and that's the fucking news they break. And Josh Rogan and them write together. And guess who Josh Rogan hangs out with? Moaz Mustafa. He has been to Syria multiple times. He's part of the Syrian Emergency Task Force. He's the guy in that photo with John McCain that everyone says is ISIS. Um, it's and that's not that so he's bizarre. ISIS. It's it's him. I mean, the, the, it's not it's not that it's ISIS. It's this guy. It's this guy in the Syrian Emergency Task Force. Yeah, which is it's not officially the U.S. government, right? Correct. And John McCain, you know, he's not in the White House. So what's right. he doing? You right. know, so it's just like, but he's he's a very popular or he's a very powerful senator. So it's like, what are these people doing together? You know, a lot of people, yeah, like you said, that sort of overshadowed what maybe that really was by saying, oh, John McCain is, you know, hanging out with ISIS or whatever. I mean, in reality, he was kind of hanging out with a possible privatized arm of even maybe the CIA. Or and it's the same thing with the Mujahideen al-Khulk. When, when McCain goes over to Iran and tries to, like, galvanize this, like, quote-unquote revolutionary group that he's basically funding and that they fund him and... It's, it's a fucking terrorist organization, according to the U.S. government itself. I mean, it was not even taken off the list until this year, and it's, like, illegal to get funding from these groups. And McCain was just openly getting funding from these groups and going over there and trying to galvanize, like, these this uprising in Iran. It's the same shit in Syria. Look, we know that the U.S. government is at odds with Assad. Say all you want about Assad. I, I am not an Assad apologist. He uses barrel bombs against civilian populations. It's disgusting. He's responsible for mass casualties. That being said, I am staunchly against U.S. military intervention in the country. I think that would only exacerbate the problem. I think that the funding of, quote, fucking moderate rebels there is a disaster. How could you ever fund rebels anywhere and expect them to stay moderate? How can you vet people to make sure that you're staying within a, quote, moderate rebel? It makes no sense. No, like, of obviously, it it's going to get into, like, the hands of the worst people there. That's the PR sheen on it. We ultimately, the U.S. government doesn't give a fuck if they're moderate or they're extremist because... Right. In reality, if you really think about it, and you could talk about the intentions behind it or if it was a conspiracy all along or whatever, but ultimately it doesn't matter that it really does benefit the U.S. government's long-term goals to prop up extremists. Absolutely, I mean, especially Because it, it gives us an endless excuse because if real extremists start to become a threat in all these different countries in the Middle East, then, whoa, lo and behold... Let's we got to go there now. Yeah, you know? and look I mean, what it's happened. Just so look at ISIS. I mean, that that's exactly what happened. Yeah, it's like when you leave a giant vacuum in Libya, and when you're funding quote rebels in Syria, and giving them like all this crazy weaponry, and then in Iraq you bomb the shit out of fucking Iraq, you leave a helpless population with zero infrastructure and an army who's not well equipped to fight a U.S. like a, like for a U.S. puppet regime. Who the hell wants to do that? Of course they're going to flee. Of course, like, whatever the most extremist group is that's going to come in there and, and hold ground. I mean, it's just absurd to think that this is somehow a shock. And it's unbelievable. 
So that's that's that photo that was circulating everywhere. And when I saw the photo, I thought it was funny because I was like, oh, this isn't ISIS. This is actually Moaz Mustafa. I know this guy. He hates me. Moaz and I hate each other because like six months ago, I covered how the Syrian rebels, who Moaz is allied with, um, cut off the water supply in Aleppo, Syria, and Moaz like called me out. And I was like, bro, you work with Al-Qaeda. And I say that very honestly because this guy is not just getting funding from APAC. He doesn't just go over there and shill with John McCain. He literally like meets with Mossad and he meets with Al-Qaeda representatives and thinks that that's somehow like badass that Al-Qaeda is trying to recruit him. Um, that's this guy's job. So he's like this liaison for the CIA, essentially. Um, yeah, and if any journalist or other private citizen was doing stuff like that, they would immediately be put on a terrorist watch list mm -hmm. and like barred from traveling. Mm -hmm. So what does that tell you? I mean, and what does that if, tell you? If, if this guy isn't in somehow in direct collusion with some sort of arm of the U.S. government, then he might as well be. He's traveling all around the world. He's constantly, he's like in France one week here and the other week. It's like, who the fuck is funding this guy? Seriously. Yeah, it's just like how Jamie Kerchick, uh, the foreign policy initiative fellow, was like in Donetsk and, and uh, Crimea and all these different places like at random times. And he's supposedly just a journalist for, mm -hmm. you know, these little kind of like topical journalistic outlets it's like well why is he doing like geopolitics like traveling it's and it, and he doesn't really write about it a whole a whole lot to justify that kind of travel right, so you, it's right. just like it's, it's highly highly interesting it is but, highly interesting uh but do you want to mention like these other characters yeah so this is what happens i remember landing in san francisco because we we're all going to fly to japan together and I, I got this email um, of who the guests were on the show that day. And I saw Evan Barrett, Syrian Emergency Task Force. And I was just like, whoa, what the fuck? Like, this is basically Moaz's partner. I mean, this guy's a baby face, like Carl Rovian D-bag um, who lives in D.C., who works for the Syrian Emergency Task Force, um, who, like, is, is just one of those dudes. He's one of those guys who gets funding from APAC and basically acts as this like lobbying front for the Syrian people. You know, he's all he's all for the Syrian people. He claims that their funding comes from Syrian people. Except wanna, he's getting one out Assad. Except coincidentally he's getting paid by a, a, a advocacy group that's like a, that's all about uh trying to overthrow the Assad yeah. regime. So it's oh, like yeah. what a coincidence. He's really for the Syrian people, you right. know, when it comes to his paycheck. Right. So Right. No, exactly. I don't know what the hell his background is. and I don't really care. It's a complete tool. Just like one of those generic like plaid wearing Carl Rovians. Yeah. When you uh, say inbred and Carl Rovian, like we're not talking about like we think he's like a hick from Texas. No. Like Carl Rove is not like a t he's a, he is a carpetbagger just like George W. Bush and his father before him. They are not like Texans. Carl Rove embodies and I don't know if it's the gene pool out on like the East Coast, blue blood sort of yeah. Ivy League educated scene. But, you know, people in D.C. who work in these industries and who sort of work around this massive circle that sort of emanates from the U.S. government, they look they literally do look like baby faced, like fat, baby fat, like yeah. Carl Rove, uh, Carl Rove. Yeah, I mean, no, there's no I'm not even to trying it. to be like ad like, hominem, like come to D.C. And yeah, imagine what I'm Carl Rove about. looked like at the same weight. At like age 35. And that's like how half of the people look like walking around D.C. It's, it's, it's actually quite 
fascinating. <laughs> it is really fascinating. So I saw that this guy was on the show and I was just like, oh shit, like what is going on? It was a bullshit facade. It was like, it had, it screamed of the same bullshit facade of the Liz Wall thing, except not quite as bad. Apparently that's who th- this guy, Bear, Evan Barrett was connected to. Josh Rogan um, wrote that Stand with Caesar article and was the one who sort of broke that story yeah, with those and pictures. Let's explain what that is. It's like this photographer who got these photos of like people who had died uh, allegedly at the hands of Assad. Um, and that's what the photos were that Evan Barrett was showing, you know, exposing on the show. Just found out that um, Eli Lake and Josh Rogan, who they're essentially really really good stenographers they plant government stories all the time and i just read that they got lavishly rewarded for their stenography and they got a really really cushy job at um bloomberg and they're getting paid like 375 g's for their quote-unquote journalism which is incredible because if i were if i called myself a journalist i would never even feel comfortable making that much money like that journalists are supposed to be kind of struggling (laughs) like if you just like get handed almost half a million dollars to quote unquote do journalism in dc like you're doing something wrong (laughs) you're you're definitely doing something wrong so and to give people a quick example of of what exactly we're talking about when we say like planting government stories i mean the the al-qaeda conference calls one thing when um eli like likened it to the um, Legion of Doom. Um, but another thing that Glenn Greenwald actually exposed is how um, a group called the Camstall Group, I mean, there's literally hundreds of these think tanks. I didn't even know about this until this article was published, but this is just one of dozens of think tanks on, you know, in D.C. This one's stacked with former Treasury Department officials in both the Bush and Obama administrations. Um, amazingly, what they do is manage U.S. government's relationships with the Persian Gulf regimes and Israel. And little shock to many, um, somehow Greenwald got a hold of like the records of who these people meet with in terms of journalists. And guess who was at the top of the list? Eli Lake? Yeah. He, he meets with these officials. I think he's met with them like over a dozen times over a couple months course and then you see eli like writing um mirroring what the objectives of this think tank are which is like talking shit about qatar and kind of bolstering up israel and talking about how qatar is the one really financing um isis and that it's not you know it's it's kind of deflecting saudi arabia blame and all this shit it's just like all this bizarre stuff and you're like dude how much did they pay you like, did they take you, like, on a winery tour? Like, where are you going with these, like, treasury officials, bro? Oh, yeah, it would be amazing to find out that kind of information. I mean, that's that stuff is all probably in the black budget somewhere. I mean, it's oh, yeah, obvious. Of course. It's, like, it's totally just ridiculous. It's, like, here, you meet with these guys and you write these That's articles. what's so like, fascinating about God, how it is. It is so obvious. But then at the same time, when they responded to Glenn Greenwald, like, Neither of them seemed that phased by it. And they just kept saying things to Greenwald, like, prove it. This is just all innuendo, like, prove it. Yeah. It's like, what? This doesn't mean anything. So it's like, it's almost like they're playing chicken because that's how crazy and sociopathic they are. It's like Zoe Barnes and House of Cards. It's like, if someone exposed, you know, that she met with Frank Underwood all these times, she'd be like, yeah, prove it. That doesn't mean anything. Like, that's not relevant, you know? 
And it's, exactly. and it's just all speculation to say that he's been feeding me stories. It's like, well, any smart you know person who's paying a little bit of attention will know that that's not the case. But at the same time, you really can't prove it. You know, you can't like, so it's just, it's interesting that they, that they kind of have that attitude about it. Like they know what they're doing, but nobody can really prove it. You know, you can't really catch them completely red handed. I'm reading Max Blumenthal's article right now. It's it's on Mondois and it's called Shady PR Operatives Pro-Israel Ties Anti-Castro Money Inside the Syria Opposition DC Spin Machine. It's a very long title. I'll link to it on the timeline right now, but it basically just breaks down how there's all this like anti-Castro money and pro-Israel money within the Syrian opposition. And you realize that all these fronts are united. And it's just so disturbing because I'm just wondering, like, do these like idiot pawns at the bottom who think that they're like revolutionaries fighting Assad, like this guy's fucking half Palestinian. Does he like he's just taking money from APAC? I mean, it's just it's just gross. It's fucking gross, dude. It's gross. But it's that's the that's how business works in D.C. It's yeah, it's not just bribes and you know, corporations uh, bribing and lobbying to get like, you know, regulations lifted. There's a whole lot more crazy collusion and people conspiring against each other at DC that people even can comprehend. I mean, it's, 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 it's so creepy and nuanced that you couldn't even really write a show, fictional show or movie about it and really do it justice. Like, because it's so complex and everybody's a backstabber and all the, you know, and in different ways for different people. And it's just, you know, everything's connected, but at the same time, everyone has their own agenda and there's all these different factions everywhere. You know, sometimes they align, sometimes they don't. And a lot of the time you don't know who's pulling whose strings or, you know, who's really pushing the narrative. It's, it's all very smoke and mirrors kind of stuff, you know, shielded through all these layers (laughs) of think tanks and groups and, mouthpieces but in reality they're just they are pr you know talking points or propaganda that's just being filtered through different outlets so that it seems like it's a real discussion or like real you know legitimate advocacy or whatever but it's all manufactured yeah i mean just that one think tank the camstall group how many more think tanks are there with people who are not quote-unquote actively within the government Mm -hmm. these people aren't sitting officials but they, they clearly have an extraordinary pull with government officials. I mean, they're ex-treasury Well, just think about the... Aid. And so how many, how many groups are there Just like think this? about this general concept. If you're inside in the inner circle of the U.S. government for that long, like, say, as long as Robert Kagan was, or even someone like Crystal, who really wasn't in it for that long... But if you're smart and sort of, like, doing reconnaissance and, and sort of, like, absorbing what's going on around you you know, seeing classified information being told about things that are even more classified that you don't have access to by other employees of the government, you know, who are sharing things with you, you come out with an extremely um, amazing amount of resources in order, uh, you know, to figure out how to plug into this system and sort of use it, you know, plug into the system as a whole, this like sort of the media and the government sort of colluding together. And I think that that I mean, that's just really interesting that like someone who used to have classified information or used to be inside the U.S. government is now working outside the government, but is still trying to do similar things that the government and mm-hmm, the media does. Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. it's fascinating. I mean, it's all very similar, just like a lot of people say that, 
you know, working for the CEO of a corporation is not too different from being the president or being, you know, the governor or something. And that's why a lot of the times they, you know, Cheney, like Cheney was the CEO of uh, Halliburton, right? And Rumsfeld was the CEO yeah. of some pharmaceutical company. Yeah, you're telling me they don't have like massive stock in those Yeah, can you imagine still? the type of experience and power that it would give you just to understand the inner workings of, one, the White House, the most, one of the most powerful government entities right. in the world, and then be like a powerful Fortune 500 comp corporation. I mean, just jumping in and out of those and then out, you know, when you're out of those into a think tank, it's like, it doesn't matter that you're not inside the government anymore, really, because you're probably no. still... No, it gives you more yeah. immunity. You're yeah. older, wiser, you're more experienced, you have you have reach inside the government, you probably have people that relay in classified information to you still. So it's, it is really interesting when you think about that it's not like the government and then people outside the government. It's much more messy and weird <laughs> than that. Yeah, and I mean, I'm really just disgusted with this whole Syrian thing. I mean, here you have Obama launching another war. It's, I think it's the seventh war with a Muslim country under Bill, Nobel Peace Prize winning president, um, without congressional approval, without, I mean, a violation of so much shit, a violation of international law, totally unabashed, under the auspices, this is the best part, under the auspices of fighting ISIS. It's like, dude, really? Really? That, that's why you're bombing Syria. Look, it's one thing to bomb Iraq, again, even though I think it's completely insane and horrible. That at least, the U.S. puppet regime that you installed was like, yeah, help us bomb ISIS, whatever, you can argue all day about that. The Syria thing is a whole different beast, because Assad explicitly said, don't, no, 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 do not come near our country. Assad knows what the hell the U.S. is trying to do. This is not a new game. For Syria, I mean, this has been going on for years. Look at what happened last year, the whole chemical chemical weapons, the red line. Um, Obama tried to bomb Syria unilaterally, and the people kind of forced him to back yeah. down on that. I don't really know what caused him to back down, and here you have basically a year later, and we're already just bombing it, and, and no one seems well, to care. Think, no one seems to have that same opposition. If you think back to that event, I think that that's when things really started to shift into a very bizarre territory for geopolitics is when Obama and the U.S. government were completely, fully poised to go to war in Syria. They were saying this very similar things that George Bush said about Iraq. They were all going on TV at the same time. John Kerry, Hillary Clinton, Obama talking about chemical weapons. They crossed the red line. It seemed inevitable that we were going to go in. But for some reason, Russia and other factors like delayed it for like two years. And then in between those two yeah. years, I mean, we started to see an anti-Russian propaganda campaign obviously being launched here by the U.S. government, working with Google and other, you know, Vice even and things like that. And I mean, just and then the Edward Snowden thing happened and Russia took him in for asylum and then the and foreign the policy initiative, you know, put up the, you know, um, helped orchestrate the Liz Wall stunt and then tried to like, you know, destroy your reputation. So it's just fascinating that all those things have taken place. Um, and it all seems to stem from that initial rift or something. It was like Syria. Right, right, right. And I mean, Syria to me is one of the most interesting things because I haven't seen a war yet that a lot of liberals have seemingly kind of just like accepted and gotten not maybe behind, but not really that opposed to like, and I, and I do think that in some ways the alternative media has sort of helped 
hype up this fear of ISIS to ridiculous heights or just like ridiculous amounts, you know, um, you know, maybe not doing it in the same way that Fox News hyped up Al Qaeda, like right after 9-11. But and ultimately, it kind of has a similar effect because it's like, you know, you show that kind of stuff enough, just like you show enough videos to people in the south of black uh, teens knocking out people on the street, you know, over and over and over again. And it, it, it makes people afraid and it makes people think, well, maybe it's not so bad that we're bombing these crazy motherfuckers, you know? So I do think the alternative media, this is the first time I've, I felt like the alternative media is actually helping grease the skids for a full blown war. And I do think vice, you know, is right in the middle of that, which is very strange that we had this sort of like counterculture, you know, porn drug friendly news outlet of the past um, start, you know, putting out some of the most uh, influential coverage about ISIS, which I think is really interesting. And it's not influential in the sense that it's making us be like, hmm, let me think about this. We shouldn't go into Syria. It's actually kind of doing the opposite where it's like, damn, these people are fucking crazy because this is vice. Like I can trust vice. Well, here's the problem with Vice, and and this is this is one major problem that I have with them is that they cover amazing things, and a lot of stuff that they do in their video series is like really awesome. The problem is that there's no deeper analysis, so you can see something about you know the suicide force in Japan. You can talk about like this extreme wealth disparity in India, and it's all like really fucking like yeah, dude, like you're riding around this convertible in like India with like this rich billionaire, and then you're going to the slums, and then you know there's people shitting on the beach in fucking like Liberia, and you're like holy shit, this is crazy. But there's absolutely like zero <clears throat> analysis about like why these things happen, like systemic poverty, like how does this happen? You know what what can be done about it? And and I think it's basically that same kind of superficial thing that was applied to ISIS mm -hmm. is that they covered the ISIS thing with zero context. You know, how did ISIS um, proliferate? How did they gain strength? I mean, one good thing, at least that they showed was how they actually like gain support in communities, because it's not it's not like they're just going there with fucking guns blazing and everyone's like a yeah. slave. I mean, it's a lot more complex than that, but I think that that's, that's, I think if you're looking at the problem with Vice, it stems across all of their coverage with pretty much everything that has to do with like, Everything that's like geopolitical, that's like in the moment, like happening now, you know, the, the forefront mm -hmm, issues, mm -hmm. Ukraine, um, Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, um, it's... Yeah, it's like, let's go show people just like getting high, like in Afghanistan. It's like, well, let's talk about like, you know... 50 years ago like how did this all yeah stand? and even their gitmo special which was sort of like done in this like edgy style like shaky cam style they kept consulting um that same uh god i, I have his name written down here somewhere they kept consulting that guy who basically made that pro drone cartoon that we wrote an article on media roots mm -hmm. about like three or four years ago um, that was their yeah. main consultant for the piece on Gitmo and they kept going back to him and it was essentially just making all these excuses for why Obama couldn't close it. And that's Vice's, right. that is Vice's exclusive Gitmo special compared to yours, which is you go into it with the premise that this is absolutely abhorrent. There is no excuse for this. That's, I mean, that's kind of the basis for your, your special. And it's just, you know, in stark contrast to theirs, it's strange, but I just wanted to mention really quick, you know, for people who listen to our DC think tanks, um, 
DC think tanks, uh, you know, create cold war tipping point episode, which is one of our most listened to episodes recently kind of went through the whole Liz wall story. What happened when the neocons tried to launch an attack against Russia today. Um, but in that we talked about radio free Europe, which is a not very well known, but it is, it is a U.S. state funded um, media outlet that broadcasts all over the world in all these different languages. But they also have an English language outlet that kind of has content here. But one of the weirdest things to me was sort of after I started getting this feeling about Vice having like some kind of propaganda pro-war kind of leaning content on there, I found um, that they have used Radio Free Europe content um, 20 times in different articles. And these aren't just any old articles. These are all articles about sort of the geopolitical stuff we're talking about. Pakistan, Afghanistan, Syria, Ukraine. Um, And in, in 20 of these articles, they used either videos or quotes from Radio Free Europe stories and did not disclose that Radio Free Europe is a U.S. state-funded outlet. And which was what was interesting to me is only one time out of 20 times did they actually disclose that it was. And when I say they, I mean that the reporter of that individual story wrote um, sort of in parentheses that Radio Free Europe is a U.S. state-funded outlet. He says U.S.-funded Radio Liberty, which is the name for their radio um, thing. But it's just fascinating to me that, you know, for whatever reason, I'm not saying that Vice is directly, you know, taking orders from the U.S. government. For whatever reason, they've tried to maybe legitimize themselves or sort of present themselves as a more like economist, New Yorker style, you know, outlet to more intellectuals. So they've used U.S. state funded content multiple times and not disclose it to their readers, which to me, it's kind of shocking for what we would expect out of an outlet like Vice, you know, this that does like psychedelic specials like once a month. But but still, it goes back to what I said is that there's no deeper context. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, and, and if you're looking at like Radio Free Europe, like, yeah, they do. I mean, it's just like RT. It's like Radio Free Europe's over in Russia exposing shit. Like, yeah, there's there's real issues that they're exposing, the gay law, etc. There's obviously like a huge hidden agenda in, in terms of the U.S., mm-hmm funded outlet um i and i think that vice hires like hundreds and hundreds of journalists that are just like so loosely affiliated and i don't i that that does seem really strange though that like none of them would disclose that because that does seem a well, really, really um stark point that you would want yeah. to disclose. no I, I agree with you i don't think and this is the interesting thing is these are not like intrepid like trailblazing journalists who worked for vice who did this these are kind of like that kind of yeah. like unknowns from vice who i never really hear about writing things there's great reporters for Vice, like Jason Leopold. Um, and these people just seem like maybe they're lower on the totem pole. But what was interesting is I tweeted, so I tweeted to a couple of them. I tweeted to Samuel Oakford, who was the only guy who disclosed it. And his explanation was he felt that it was a fact that should be stated. And I was like, okay, well, why do you think you're, you know, all these other articles don't state it? And then he kind of said, you know, I was a conspiracy theorist or whatever. And he didn't really have an explanation. He was seemed confused. Well, he seemed confused, too, about why these other articles did not disclose that Radio Free Europe was a U.S. state funded outlet, because he did in his article. Right. But why would I mean, he can't speak for just random. No, I I was sort of asking him, is there some sort of vice, you know, connection? Do they have some sort of relationship with Radio Free Europe or something like that? Like, I thought he might have an answer. 
But what was interesting is another reporter who I asked about it, her name is Emma Beals. She actually denied it at first. She was like, I've never used any Radio Free Europe content. She's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And I'm like, well, why does this, this, and this have videos from Radio Free Europe in your article? And she was like, I never, she's like, I didn't even realize those were Radio Free Europe. She's like, that was Vice Editorial who put those in. So I thought that was kind of interesting because it's like someone went above, you know, seemingly the, at least this writer and put that video into the article. So I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm just very suspicious of Vice's political coverage. I think they do great work and certain writers do great work. But, you know, the stuff like we were talking about, about Afghanistan, Syria, um, I just found it's it's very it's very suspicious to me. Yeah, I mean, I guess I disagree with you there. I just think it's just a loose-knit organization that's trying to find out what their real, like, narrative is. I don't think that they really have yeah. one. But I think that when it comes to... You think it's to, like them trying on a hat, maybe, for this that time period? Yeah, and I think that here's the difference, is that Radio Free Europe is just probably, like, saturating themselves in the right context. I mean, and and I maybe Shane Smith and whoever else is the editorial director's advice just have a more mainstream outlet or like outlook sorry on ukraine and and syria and things like that and i don't think it's necessarily malice or trying to like tout the cia's objectives or whatever i think it's just radio free europe's really good at propaganda too and just like that girl said she didn't even know it was radio free europe and and maybe they just have like a really good like you know, like that shaky cam, like DSLR shit going on, like in Russia, like exposing this and yeah. that. And I mean, because if you think about it, besides Vice, Radio Free Europe seems to have like the best on the ground access that I've seen in yeah. these more obscure yeah. foreign countries. That's so, exactly. But it, it is it is exactly. still troubling that I mean, yeah, there might not be some kind of overarching relationship, but it is still odd that they would not disclose it. I mean, or they would just like pop those videos into their content. Because they don't well, pop RT videos into content, you know? But you're expecting Vice to be like, I guess, rejecting U.S. hegemony and imperialism, which I think that we're expecting too much out of Vice. I mean, sure, there's like really intrepid journalists there who are doing that consistently, but there's hundreds of just random journalists. A lot of them are horrible writers and just covering terrible shit. And I just think, I don't know, maybe we're just like, have too much of an idealized sense of what we think vice's like intent is and i i don't i don't really think that they are cutting into that um no i wanted to mention just really quick i didn't have the name of the guy but the guy who they consult in that in the vice gitmo special his name is daniel claydman and we wrote an article on media roots about him called propagandist for the anti-war liberals daniel claydman yeah, we'll we'll link to that. Yeah, this is a guy who basically is like the poster boy for promoting drones. He's like this like douchey looking like Silicon Valley nerd, like curly hair, freckles, and he was like super prominently featured on the Vice Gitmo special, just kind of apologizing for Obama. What I thought was weird about that special is that it rounded out totally hopeless. Like it was just like, look, it's been a really dark chapter. We can learn from this chapter, never do it again. 
I'm like, wait, yeah, there's yeah, yeah, still yeah. 140 people like rotting yeah. away who are it's like, like, uh, like tons of people who are like, like risking their lives to try to get a message out there. It's not too late. Like, no, they're not all yeah, dead. It's sort of like the, sort of like <laughs> like, the hopeless, cynical spin on like, we need to look forward, not backward or something sort of interesting. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, it was just like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like we still have processes that we can get these people out. <laughs> like we just need the pressure to get these men out of Gitmo. Um, I wanted to talk about our Japan trip really quickly. I wanted to talk about how fascinating it was. Um, first of all, there's a lot of fucking things that we can learn from Japanese people. A, they help people on the street. If you like, I just feel really inspired about being lost there and having like multiple people stop and say, you look lost. How can I help you? And actually not just helping you, but going out of their way for the next hour, take like buying a ticket to go into a metro and helping you get on a train and really meaning it and uh just how clean and efficient everything is how there's just like people can open bars and restaurants in their own homes and just take such pride in their their space and their lives and just it was just super super inspiring and how kind of this inherent trust within the culture that you can kind of like leave these hotels open unmanned with ancient samurai swords and buddha statues and like you can take the robes and the wooden slippers and go from hotel to hotel and there's no one, you know, I, I just feel like that if that were in America, people would be like taking the samurai swords and like slicing cushions and like drinking in the hot oh springs God, yeah. and like fucking and it would just be well, If you think about just the contrast between Japanese rules and or laws and here, you can buy uh, liquor like booze in the vending machine and you ha technically have to be like I think eighteen or maybe even twenty one now in Japan, but I mean really anybody could could use one of those vending machines and not get caught. And then when you, once you think about that, there's like, you know, the the drinking cutoff time doesn't really even seem to exist. I mean, like I didn't, I don't remember anyone ever saying last call. I think maybe like one bar did, but it was just because he was just closing up for the night. But the other ones were still open. So, and and you contrast that with how. We, you know, all of our bars here close till two, you know, close at two a.m. Um, we don't really allow public drinking like in Japan. You can pretty much drink anywhere on the street if you want to. And there are sloppy drunk people in Japan that like you know puke on the ground or whatever. But like, there's not really many cases of like drunken brawls or like riots. You know, it's it's a much more respectful collectivist culture where they have like an inherent respect people don't even lock their bikes up there which we were just like shocked there was like hundreds of bikes in shinjuku that were just completely unlocked just like left on the you know waiting for people to come back to yeah and and your friend said that bike theft was the biggest crime so that shows you how little yeah crime there and is. i mean not to say that there aren't fucked up people or things that happened to japan i mean there's plenty of weird weird things about it that don't really parallel here you know the they're their mob class, the Yakuza, um, is sort of like widely feared and in Japan. And there's a lot of collusion between them and the police. That's very interesting, and well-documented. So, you know, you know, it's, there's, there's definitely like bad things about, about Japanese society, but like, I mean, they have a very rich cultural heritage that goes back, you know, thousands of years. And, you know, we don't, you know, in America, we just don't have that. And, and I think that a big portion of this kind of overarching politeness and proudness and kind of humility is the fact of what happened in World War II. I mean, 
yes, the Japanese military was terrible. Yes, there was the rape, like the, the Nanking, you know, tons of people were slaughtered um, in China and a really, really horrible time. But dropping two nuclear bombs um, on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, I think really, um, basically Japanese people will never, like they, they, they know war like no one on earth Yeah, does. and it's not even... And I think that's yeah. really important. To and to call mention. it war is almost like giving too much credit to the United States because reality, I mean, what, what we did to them by dropping the two nuclear bombs was, was genocide. I mean, it was like yeah. nobody in the history of the planet has ever committed mass murder to that extent ever period. I mean, yeah, you could argue Hitler and the Holocaust that was done over many years. Um, a lot of the people weren't directly, you know, rounded up and murdered. They were slave, you know, they were slaves and they worked them until they died. A, a lot of them in Japan, we dropped two nuclear bombs that killed hundreds of thousands of people initially, and then killed hundreds of thousands in subsequent health, um, you know, uh, illnesses, radiation sickness after the fact. And caused generations of deformed embryos and and people in Japan, and I I mean as kind of from my perspective, I see it as one of the most horrific acts committed in the history of humankind. I mean, it's it's like no, it's, it's maybe it's number one. Of the one. Largest psychological. No, yeah, I think it's one of the biggest acts of terrorism and also like psychological warfare ever perpetuated yeah. on humanity. And and it's state. and if you really think about it. It was the start of a, a new era. It wasn't just psychological warfare on the Japanese people. It was psychological warfare on the world. It was like an oh, yeah. advertisement for, hey, look at what we have. Don't oh, yeah. fuck with us no, ever absolutely. again or you're going to get fucked. And so people who still hold on to this myth, like I, I'm actually shocked at how many people still do. But once I posted this photo of this like woman whose kimono was burned on her, we went to the Hiroshima Museum and it was just unbelievable. I mean... Even the most fervent anti-nuclear activists will be like devastated. It's mind-blowing. It's tragic. You you cry because there's so many horrific things you just never knew and you will not ever learn. Growing up in America, of course, you know we kind of learned that the bombs were dropped in the next chapter and end of the war. I think a really important point to say is that a um, a is that Pearl Harbor was a naval base. Um, it's a military target, and not only was it not a surprise attack, um, because the U.S. had imposed harsh economic sanctions against Japan, and kind of um, initiated that that whole like act of war, which is an act of war. Not only had that happened, but also that the U.S. had broken the Japanese naval code. I mean, this is this is well documented, well documented. Um, we knew. That Pearl Harbor was going to be a target. That aside, that aside, fine. If you, if you, uh, Pearl Harbor, I'm not taking away from the tragedy that was Pearl Harbor. It's horrible that 3,000 people died. However, you're, it's a military base. Like Hiroshima and Nagasaki were two civilian cities full of countless innocent school children, countless people, even thousands of American POWs there. Yeah, it's. I mean, no, I mean, if you don't mind if I just go off for a second, I mean, it's it's a subject that yeah. infuriates me greatly because it was one of, I'd say it was probably my main awakening originally when I went to Japan like over 10 years ago and, and visited the Hiroshima Museum. I wasn't politically aware. I didn't really question a lot of, you know, American propaganda that was sort of implanted in me. And that sort of turned my world upside down going there and... 
going to it again the second time. So the first time when I went, it was more, I was sort of shocked, confused, processing things very heavily, sort of experiencing like cognitive dissonance in one of the most like classic ways ever, you know, just sort of like, well, wait, this seems really wrong, but wait, they deserved it maybe because they did this and sort of going back and forth constantly in my mind, I was like fighting a battle with the propaganda that was so deep inside me almost. And the second time I went, you know, where I am now politically and where you are and getting to go to the museum with a, a guy who was in utero when the bomb was dropped. I mean, that mm-hmm. was insane. I mean, it, it was deeply emotional. But once I got past the sadness and the, the overwhelming feeling of actually being there with a, a survivor, um, it was it made me incredibly angry, incredibly pissed off. Yeah at how fucking brainwashed so many people in America still mm-hmm. are, how this isn't considered one of the most horrifying things human beings have ever done to each other, how it's so brushed to the side in American culture, how people who even watch your show still defend it. I mean, that just shows how deeply right, ingrained right, right. and stupid people are. I mean, I can't fucking believe it. And it's just, it makes me so angry to think that we are such crybaby pussies that, that 9-11... You know, and Pearl Harbor are these two things that we hold up to justify everything that we've fucking done. And if you really think about it, it's a drop in the bucket compared to things that other countries and other societies have gone through or experienced. I mean, even just just Hiroshima is an example. 100,000 people murdered in a giant nuclear bomb. You know, compared to 3,000 military people or people who are working, you know, for the military base who died in a military operation. You know, you work on a military base. Your job is to expect at any time America might be attacked or go to war. And that's your duty as signing up for something like that. I know there was a draft in World War II, but even still, I mean, that was why you were there. We did Japanese people didn't come over here and fucking bomb San Francisco. They didn't bomb Honolulu. They bombed Pearl Harbor. I mean, that just goes to show how fucking insane we are as a country, not just because of doing that in the first place, but because of how we've justified it and conditioned the public to think, oh, they surprise attacked us. So we got fucking revenge on them. I mean, first, like you said, they didn't surprise attack us. Economic warfare, cutting off a country's oil supply is an act of war. We didn't just like level a, a kind of, you know, wishy-washy economic sanction like we did on Russia recently. We actually like cut off their oil supply. Japan does not have oil fields, you know? So, I mean, it's insanely childish. Um, it makes me think that America is one of the weakest and most cowardly nations on the planet with the most weapons. I mean, it is really disturbing to me. That we present ourselves as this t- these tough people, you know, who won't stand up, you know, for that, you know, kind of injustice. But it's like, in reality, like, it wasn't a surprise attack. Like, you, and... Right, and, and these hypotheticals that people use, like, people, half the people that, like, defied, you know, kind of, kind of us saying, like, oh, it was really fucked up. They're just like, but, you know, but Truman, like, I hailed Truman because millions more would have died. And I just say, like... Like, why is a hypothetical falsehood, mind you, why is that ever justifiable for, like, mass atrocities? Like, I'm just confused of why you would ever use a hypothetical scenario to justify, like, a horrific atrocity. Like, just fucking own up. 
Just no, they can't. Up, dude. And, and it's like it reminds me of this this short story that I that like you know in some class we read in high school called the. Do you remember the cold equations? So it's a no. st- it's a short story about like a guy in the future who's like going to rescue some people who got jettisoned on a planet like their shuttle crashed and he's like a rescue he's almost like an ambulance shuttle like going to rescue them or whatever and on his way there he finds out that a young girl has uh, stowed away on his ship has like tried to like escape from you know her parents or run away from home or whatever and halfway there the the whole book is this like sort of heartbreaking story where he has to make the decision to kill her essentially because the 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 title cold equations comes from the idea that the ship cannot handle an extra passenger it was designed for like a certain amount of passengers he went mm-hmm. out there with a certain amount of fuel he would not be able to go rescue these three people on this planet if he also kept her along on the ship they wouldn't they would all die essentially was the plot so it, there's this like tragic scene you know in the a story or whatever where she, he basically like kills her and he explains to her like why he's doing it and she sort of accepts her fate and it's like really sad but it's kind of like a similar thing like we've created this like bullshit cold equations thing where we're like yeah we had to drop those two nuclear bombs because it it saved more lives like if we hadn't have done that a bunch more people would have died it's like what kind of fucking bullshit logic is that it's like saying you had to like shoot up an entire shopping mall full of people because like one of them could have been like a murderer and killed people or something. I mean, it's just such a bizarre hypothetical that it's, it's hilarious to me that that's the defense still. And it's been the defense since I've been a child, like reading about this shit. I mean, it's a, it's a talking point. Right. And let's debunk that. Let's debunk even that because, uh, you know, first of all, people say like, oh, that was the only thing that caused Japan to surrender. False. I mean, it's very false. And and it's extremely easy to find this out. It's literally documented by dozens, if not hundreds of military officials, like literally uniform. It's actually shocking. Um, I was looking, so Truman had initiated this, um, let me actually find it right now. Um, It's called the U.S. Strategic Bombing Survey Group. 1946, Truman himself established this commission to kind of study the attacks. And this is their conclusion. It says, based on a detailed investigation, Japan would have surrendered, even if the atomic bombs had not been dropped, even if Russia had not entered the war, and even if no invasion had been planned or contemplated. Along with this declaration, there's literally dozens of just testimonies, declassified documents and testimonies and diary entries from every single military official around that time in the administration exclaiming the same exact thing. It was a horrific crime, completely unnecessary, um, fake. I mean, we did not have to do it. And it was, it was total fucking bullshit. And, and unfortunately these are the words from the horse's mouth and people still reject it because they just want to hold on to that myth, dude, because it's easier to believe that America's yeah. right. It's easier to believe that America didn't commit one of the biggest acts of terrorism in the 20th century without there being some reason, some reason to justify it, because it's just such a, a part of our past. And I think, you know, and, and a lot of people say like, well, my grandpa and, you know, and our, and our grandpa too. I mean, I don't know if our grandpa would have would have disagreed with us because it was just that era, but I'm sorry. I mean, it's time to accept like reality. I mean, it, nope. Take your head of the fucking yeah, sand. I mean, we're living in a country that has committed, you know, like I said, possibly the most horrific act ever committed on another group of human beings in the history of mankind. 
I mean, it's so it's it's hard, you know, for people, I think, to realize that or it to is. even come close to thinking that, you know, it might be ranks on there, like at the bottom of the top 50 or something for maybe most people who are even politically aware. But I mean, it's mass murder. And we're so used to playing. Yeah, we're, victim, that's the that's the sad thing is know? we're so used to playing victim. But think about it this way. Who really suffered the heaviest toll in terms of like a nation state in you know during world war ii i'd say probably well 20 million people yeah, probably russia, russia germany and japan you know but we didn't even really get attacked here in our civilian areas i mean we didn't like the uk um was being bombed by germany constantly um yeah dresden the bombing yeah, of dresden so i just think it's amusing that we act so heroic during world war ii but i almost see it now if you look at the historical context of it all it's almost like there was a fire sale and we jumped in right at the right time to fucking no, like fucking like pillage the fuck out of shit and we're just like oh shit if we jump in no. and we like grab like germany before russia oh shit let's do this and oh if we bomb you know japan then we can like scare russia i mean it was just like a game and we even faked the reason why we went into um, Germany too. I mean, like we we claimed that Germans uh, like tanked a um, a passenger ship in in you know in the ocean, but a lot of people, a lot of historians have said that it was actually like probably like a U.S. military ship that was engaged in battle, and like they they lost. <laughs> Robbie, you're crazy conspiracy. Yeah. So this is why one of the holy. Why would you this is one of the holy that? wars that Howard Zinn talks about that you can't even question it. But if you look at all the historical facts, Hitler and Japan's army would have fallen on their own without our involvement. That is that is a that is a fact. Just look at what happened. That is a fact. That is a fact. And and before the nuclear bombs, plural, were dropped, the U.S. had firebombed Tokyo to the point where there was so crippled. Two thousand tons of incendiary bombs were dropped. Within two days, the entire fucking city was burned. 130,000 civilians. Just in the firebombings alone. That's 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 just in the firebombing. Mm -hmm. That's just in the firebombing. Yeah. And, and I mean, Jesus And that's Christ. the thing, too, is most people don't even, this doesn't even factor into their thinking a lot of the times, but it's like Germany and Japan are not autonomous nations to this day. They have restrictions imposed on them. They can't, their army can only exist to a certain extent. They do not have as, they're not autonomous nations like even other members of the European Union are. So these countries have massive military, U.S. military presence still in them. Massive. Some of the right. biggest military, U.S. military presence in the entire world is in Germany and Japan. So it's just right. amusing to me that we're, we're essentially still there. I mean, it's like these aren't, right. so... You never leave, just like Ron Paul said. He said you never leave a country once you invade it, or one, not not necessarily invade, but once you're like involved militarily, and if you quote unquote win the war, um, the U.S. Yeah. never leaves. That's that's our legacy. Is that 900 bases around the world? And you know what's really sad about the nuclear legacy here is it never ended. As we know, that was just the beginning of the decades of nuclear buildup in the Cold War and. And, and, you know, now the U.S. and Russia has like 8,000 nuclear warheads, respectively. And unfortunately, even warheads that we we're trying to dismantle, we've held on to them to hold on to this fucking threat of, of, you know, battling asteroids, bizarrely enough. And I don't think a lot of people realize that that was the atomic bomb. And as horrific and destructive as that was, where it just melted people's skin right off the bone, if it didn't incinerate you on sight... 
And if it didn't create the black rain and ashy sky that people were like drinking soot and making the city on fire for days, and if it didn't burn you alive in the weeks and days after, and we didn't tell the Japanese people that it was radioactive, and we studied them like lab rats, that all aside, that was the atomic bomb. We have the hydrogen bomb now, which is a weapon that's 3,300 times stronger. I, and just think about yeah. that. It's incredible. Can you imagine? No, I can't. It'd be like the super volcano erupting. Like, I don't even know what that well, would do. Well, it would, I mean, yeah, we don't know what it would do. I mean, that's why no one, you know, I think that's why it, it hasn't been used. It's the supposed mutually yeah. assured destruction that it's it's done to prevent war and all this shit. But, I mean, so many countries have nukes now, and it's not just a matter of, oh, if Iran gets a nuke or not, you know, or if Iran gets a nuke, we're going to be in more danger. I mean... I I have no reason to be more concerned about Iran having a nuke than Israel. I mean, I'm more concerned about Israel having one, having an arsenal of nuclear weapons, to right. be honest. Um, I find them far more crazy, uh, willing to do crazy, crazy shit. I mean, as crazy as the rhetoric, you know, spoken from Iran's ayatollahs and leaders are, they don't really do very many crazy things outside their borders. You know, they execute a lot of people. They stifle well, well, protests. I, but Iran, that, that's completely fake like they don't have a nuclear program they never yeah well i mean did. it's and if they do it's just, in its extreme infancy it's like they'll be at like a normal sized you know um what do they call it the fat boy nuclear bomb you know uh, anyways like when they start so it's like it just i mean i i it's people are making it out to be like you know, I mean, even look at what happened with North Korea when they detonated their first, yeah, they detonated yeah. their first quote unquote nuke. And it was like a registered lower on like whatever, you know, geo, they do have some sort of monitoring thing where they can tell when yeah. someone blows up a nuke on the planet and it like barely registered on it. So it was like these nations, when they're sanctioned into oblivion, there's no way they'd be able to have a nuclear program that would even remotely compete with the nuclear programs that already exist, you know, even in Pakistan. I mean, somehow we let that happen. And, and what's amazing. Like, oh, that's no problem. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Kashmir yeah. and Two India, mortal enemies right next to each other. Yeah. Duel it out. Duel yeah, it out giving, right the border, guys. And then, have and fun. And then Russia giving China nukes is, is horrendous because it's like, yeah. oh, look, you know, Japan is totally neutered and, and their balls have been clipped by the U.S. But look, you're you know your rival your mortal enemy has nuclear weapons like probably pointed at you you know i mean it's just fucked so fucked up when you think about it it is and gareth porter is this investigative journalist who it, what's astounding is that the whole iran dogma about you know iran's building a nuclear weapon we have the red line and blah 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 and um you know they want to wipe israel off the map when you like look at all of these claims they're all like pretty much baseless and what's astounding to me is that you can almost be at the verge of war with a country like Iran with like no investigative journalism going on to like actually actually like pursue these claims. And this one guy, thank God, this guy, Gareth Porter, went over there and um, and did this whole investigative report like multiple times. He's been studying the issue for like 20 years and he's really one of the only voices of reason. And he has spoken to tons of officials, not just Iranian government officials, because I asked him, isn't that exactly what they want to tell you? And they want you to report, you know, that they're not doing this and that. And he was, he just laid out his case and it's just extremely convincing. And he's exposed all of these, like, all of these reports and inner, you know, 
documents basically within the U.S. government essentially lining out and laying out how they are concocting the nuclear threat with Iran and how it's basically all fake. And they know that. And it's just another narrative that they're spinning, just like everything fucking else. And, w- and when you start to chip away, you realize that there's no, it doesn't hold any water. <clears throat> it doesn't hold any water. And that's not even to say that they don't deserve a nuke. Look, like you just said, I mean, <laughs> I think Israel and America are probably the two biggest forces of like, I, I mean, destruction. And I'm terrified of them. I think there was this poll done that said that people are more scared of the U.S. than any other country in the world as the biggest purveyor of like violence and destabilization and instability. Um, Israel as well. Israel is fucking the biggest impunity in the planet. Um, as long as the U.S. and Israel are partnering up and kind of defying every other country, we should fucking be terrified of them. Look what the fuck just happened in Gaza. There was essentially incitement to genocide. You want to talk about Iran's incitement to genocide? Well, I only see one country actually carrying yeah. it out. Um, I mean, Israel just killed, deliberately killed 500 children. I mean, thousands of innocent civilians. You can call them militants all day. They're resisting an occupation. It's absolutely insane. The fact that Israel has nuclear weapons and all these world bodies like covered for it didn't even admit that they had nuclear weapons, yet we're almost starting a war and sanctioning another country for not even having nuclear weapons. Like, it never happened. And even if they wanted to build nukes, even if they wanted, like, a benign or even a nuclear energy program, who the fuck are we, the only country that's ever used nuclear weapons twice on innocent civilians? And people can use that, and Obama's even used that himself and said, well, that's exactly why we should be the arbitrators. No, I'm sorry, but if you're a mass murderer and then you come out 10 years later and you're like, you know what, I was, I, I'm really, he, they haven't even apologized. I mean, they still justify it to this day. But if that mass murderer then came out and said, I know mass murder, I've done it, I've killed many people, this is why I should be the arbitrator of who shouldn't, like, have the capabilities to mass murder. You're like, wait, that doesn't make any sense. And that's really the logic here is that if if the US is the only country that's really facilitating who can can and can't have like biological and and nuclear weapons, it doesn't make any fucking sense. And here we are using depleted uranium, which basically Iraq now has a legacy that's like 30 times worse than Hiroshima even has in terms of cancer rates on top of the destabilization of Iraq and the failed state that's happening now, there's a mass exodus of doctors, health professionals, a complete crumbling of infrastructure in terms of any sort of health system. The cancer from depleted uranium is going up like 10% exponentially every decade. We've used it in 1990, you know, during the 90s. We use it again in 2003, liberally because we think that it helps stops IUD, IED bombs on the side of the road. So we just like coat all of our shit with radioactive armor and all of our bullets with radioactive shit. You're like, dude, like, my God, what is going on? And the thing is we can't ban it internationally because the US will just veto it. Like it doesn't, nothing that happens internationally will ever work as long as the military industrial complex and the biggest supplier of weaponry is just steamrolling ahead full force with zero accountability and just total impunity with these like horrific weapons. I mean, white phosphorus and DU, 
And we have the fucking audacity to say what countries can and can't develop nuclear weapons? Fuck you. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, Sorry. it's terrible. I mean, uh, but yeah, the, the nuclear thing is just <laughs> will always be a problem. I mean, once we started it, it's just a road straight to hell. There's really no, you can't just, there is no Superman who can come and like take everyone's nuclear weapons and throw them into the sun and get rid of them. I mean, it's, we're fucked. We're absolutely fucked. Gorbachev had a that shining moment where he came to Reagan and said, look, let's disarm. Yeah. Let's and even it. if just Russia and the and United Reagan States no. did it, there's a lot of other countries who wouldn't. I mean, there's too many countries right. that have nukes right now that would that would refuse to disarm. And it's like asking people to get rid right. of nuclear power or something. I mean, that's not right. going to happen. We're already on a course doomed to fail that is unstoppable the problem is do we need eight thousand though it's like look i get it like i get the whole like mad thing i get the fact that like we almost need a nuke at this point because you know china and fucking all this shit has nukes here's the thing do we need to spend a trillion dollars like updating the nuclear arsenal of eight thousand warheads i mean that that's what i think is just lunacy i mean if we if we just like scale down to maybe like 20 yeah, and that would like, even still be lunacy. Is the like, sad what? thing. It's like look of how of course it would. Look how we've been. No, of course. Like we've been raised in the United States to think essentially that having nuclear weapons is like a normal way for a country right. to behave. And I mean, I just always think back to Doctor Strangelove, and for me, that movie encapsulates perfectly the insanity of even the very early parts of the the nuclear um, standoff and and the Cold War. I mean, it's always been crazy from the very beginning. Like. Ever since Hiroshima, really. I mean, it's it's yeah. like, you know, I mean, it's, I mean, yeah, getting rid of some of them would be great. But like, you know, I mean, even with like 10 nukes, you know, each country had 10 nukes. That's still like a huge, that's really bad. That's, no, it's awful. It's sad. No, it's insane. It's insane. And then when you start talking about like the thousands, it's just like, I don't even understand it. It's like when you talk about a billion dollars, it's like, I can't even comprehend what that means because it's so out of my element of reality, my sphere of reality. And when you're talking about like, you know, 20 nukes, that's hard enough to fathom. But when we're talking about like 8,000, I just, I don't even understand what that means. No, it's like, how did we get to it's that crazy. Point? And, uh, it makes me also think, so anybody listening out there, and you haven't seen Dr. Strangelove yet, go watch it immediately because it's one of Stanley Kubrick's like best movies. It's a comedy essentially about like a uh, imminent nuclear, you know, strike, like mutual assured destruction, like style strike. And, uh, yeah. it's, it's a hilarious movie. I mean, cause it's so, it's so dark, <laughs> but it's also like, you kind of have to have, you know, it's like they actually, the concept of the movie was they were writing, an adaptation of like a generic cold war thriller book about like an imminent nuclear war that was about to happen. And in the process of writing it, they just got in this weird sort of punch drunk mode where they probably just by being so overwhelmed by the reality of the material, you know, cause it was like a cold war thriller from the fifties, I think that they just started like writing like parody start scenes out of the book, like making fun of the characters and sort of just like what it will, you know, like they didn't even intend it to be a comedy and it turned into one because that's how they responded to the material. And when I say the material, I mean, that's, that was reality at the time. It was everywhere. It was the biggest fear. It was duck and cover. It was like, 
you know, bomb shelters and stuff. So, I mean, you know, sometimes we laugh on our podcasts about horrible things, but like, and sometimes it's the only like medicine to really fucking deal with the reality because it's like, it's so disturbing. And then the movie Return of the Living Dead is, is uh, uh, from the eighties. It's a zombie movie. And I don't want to spoil the ending, but it's it's one of the best versions of it's one of the best versions of the humans are the ones to be really afraid of during a zombie apocalypse, not the zombies. But it doesn't really get there until the very, very end of the movie. But I recommend it's let's just say it has to do with the subject we've been talking about. But it's like the military sort of just has this like calculation. We're like, okay, well, this is what we need to do in this situation. So let's do it. And it's like not even like there's like no emotion behind it at all. It's just like. I don't know, but yeah, yeah I'll, I'll, we should watch that at some point. It's really, it's really good eighties. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's political movie sort of in its, in its core, but it's like, you know, a zombie movie, like a B horror movie. We just went on a long diatribe about, <laughs> about a lot of different issues. We had to decompress a lot of things cause we haven't done an episode together in a while. Um, but we're going to, we're going to continue to do them. And, um, whenever you're free to do them, Abby, we'll do them. And I already yeah. have a episode that's ready to go. Um, that'll probably come out after this, uh, interview with Graham McQueen who wrote, uh, the, the 2001 anthrax deception. Um, it's a great book. That's very kind of along similar lines to the anthrax American anthrax film that I put together for media roots. And I recommend everybody check it out. Um, you know, people can't say it's a conspiracy theory to say that um, the anthrax came from the U.S. government. It was a WMD sent from someone inside the U.S. government that killed five civilians. I mean, that's that's a fact. But the details of it are much more interesting than what we know about Bruce Ivan. So, yeah, stay tuned for that and check out his book. And do you have anything else to say? Yeah, I just wanted to say that I'm even though um, federal elections are disgusting and there's two parties that are just like, you know, old white conservative warmongering millionaires um, who do not represent any of us. I'm not shocked at all because the Democrats have no backbone. And I think that what we can really be excited about, and I really hope more people just start realizing what's going on locally because even though a lot of crazy weird shit happened, unsurprising that happened at a federal level, I think that at a local level, so much progressive shit did happen that really should inspire us. Like the fact that we can actually take to, you know, legalizing marijuana, we can um, take gay marriage in our own hands right now. We can ban fracking. We can try to fight Citizens United at a local level. We can try to do stuff with GMOs at a local level. And really that's the only agency we have left. (laughs) We can try to elect you know, Green Party candidates, independent candidates at a local level, city council members. I mean, all those things do mean something. And, and, and as long as we have this fucked up system, we need to take control over our local communities if we really want anything to change whatsoever. Um, or we can just sit home and be fucking scared and have, you know, total apathy. It's up to you. I mean, you can have both. You can be pissed and you can complain and you can also just vote one day out of fucking every two years and like really try to make a change locally but that's my only rant yeah the election just happened i think i think local elections are far more important and they happen more often than you know the president presidential election which is really the only one people usually pay attention to so do it 
you know, even if you are not sure on a lot of things, just like, you know, do a tiny bit of research. It really doesn't take that long to just get a feel for some of the propositions and the different candidates. And, you know, I mean, I'm even okay with the idea of like, you know, going in there last minute and just finding out maybe what affiliation, political affiliation, some of these candidates have, if you've never heard of them before, like if they're Green Party, if they're Libertarian, you know, chances are that either one of those candidates are going to be a better use of your vote than a Democrat or Republican. I mean, just automatically. So, <laughs> so yeah, I don't know. I mean, seriously, I, I, I know I, I love it. Like we just need to, if you, if you seriously just want to be a disruptor, just go in there and fucking vote third party every time. Yeah. I mean, you're disrupting something. And I think another really amazing thing that happened. So not only are states legalizing weed, including here in DC, which is insane, but I think that another big fuck you to the drug war was California, man. I mean, passing Prop 47 was incredible. Now having drugs is no longer going to be a felony, like possession of drugs, even heroin, methamphetamine. In and California? It's gonna like, yeah. Oh, wow. I didn't even yeah. so, know that. And it, and it was actually the 20th anniversary of three strikes law that passed. So it was just like this incredible kind of reversal. Wow. You know, the tide turn on like the, the private prison industry. And it's going to be huge. I mean, because a lot of people who are on... And, you know, sentencing right now and also in jail for those crimes are going to be released. Yeah, that's well, that's good. And I have I have some um, I'll talk about it next time, but I just have some theories about, you know, Oakland and and California as a whole and just the climate of the U.S. (laughs) and how how there may be a strategy behind this where the federal government is allowing this to take place because (laughs) because they know that people want to get high and want to have fun. They want to fuck. They want to do, they just want to do things that feel good and are pleasurable. And if people are able to do those things more and more often, I think that it will sort of quell to a certain extent, like, like social unrest in the country. It's, it's kind of like an equation that I've seen play out that like, um, the more you allow people to do that, to blow off steam, the less likely those same people are going to be out like in some protest blocking the street the next day, you know, yeah. kind of a thing. So, and I think that relates to Occupy in a, in a big way, especially in Oakland. That's just a whole nother rant, but, but yeah. So should we end it here? Yeah. Um, thanks so much for listening. I know that we didn't really have like a common thread, but yeah, like Robbie said, we needed to vent about a lot of stuff. Um, we'll be doing these much more often. And if anyone can donate to MediaRoots.org, there's still a lot of costs just maintaining the website. Yeah. Um, and also SoundCloud is ridiculous. Dude. We really need to look at an alternative yeah. because we're going to start accepting crypto, God damn. cryptocurrency soon, first Bitcoin and maybe some others after that. But that's, yeah. that's going to be implemented on the site soon. Might just be a URL you click on to donate. Um, and, uh, we'll, we'll make an announcement on Twitter or something when that's up and running. Yeah, for sure. Everyone check out the SoundCloud timeline and check out the links that we've talked about on the show. Um, comment, on the website, send info at mediaroots.org, our domain person um, who manages all the article submissions and stuff. Send them article submissions if you want to contribute to the site. And uh, yeah. And you're on Thanks Twitter so at Abby Martin. And I'm yeah. on Twitter at Fluorescent Gray. So, so troll us or whatever on there. <laughs> troll us. Yeah, troll us. <laughs> all right. Have a good night. See you.